So good to worship with you all today. And, um, you know, some of you, a lot of you have been um, at church for a long time and um, at Crossway uh, for years. And it's, it's such a joy to see. Uh, but also with that comes uh, sometimes uh, things get kind of, I don't know, gets old or we get used to things. And this it's, it's true in life, isn't it? I mean, uh, we start a new job. Um, there's a lot of excitement when we start the job, but uh, months in or years in, it kind of gets old. Um, I've had people you know, ask me, can you pray you know, for this job? I have an interview, and then three months later, I ask, how's it going? Like, can you pray for a new job? You know, or, um, uh, it's like that with a program. You might have gotten into some kind of program to study further, and you're so excited. But man, as the time is going on, as you have more tests and so on, you're like, oh, why did I sign up for this? Um, even things like marriage, sometimes we start and there's a lot of excitement and it's a novel thing, it's a new um, a stage in life. But as the years go on, sometimes if we don't guard it, it gets old or it gets boring. Um, and it gets like that with the most important things in life. And especially with our faith, you know, uh, the people that this letter is written to, you could imagine as they've been in the faith, as they've been following Christ and gathering um, like we are gathering, as years are going on, maybe for some of them they're losing their fire or they're losing their feeling. And maybe some of them are kind of slipping away into their old ways of life. And here he calls them to attention and he wants them to come back and he highlights two things. He says he wants them to hold fast the confidence in verse 6. He says, come back and hold fast to this faith, this confidence that you have. And secondly, is to boast in your hope. And so he wants to renew their faith. He wants them to now have a confidence, a boast in the hope that they have in Christ. He does this. I think the context kind of gives us a clue. He, he tells the recipients, he reminds them of who they are. In verse 1, he calls them holy brothers. He calls them... Uh, uh, those who share in the heavenly um, calling. He reminds us today that you are part of God's family. You are Christian. You are the part of the brotherhood, the sisterhood in Christ. You are those who share in the heavenly calling. Don't forget that. Don't let your feelings, don't let your circumstances, don't let the boredom of your life dictate those things. This is your identity. And what we're going to do today is he tells us to consider Jesus. Right? We see that phrase there in verse 1. Consider Jesus. As we consider him, there's four parts of who Christ is um, that's mentioned here. That will encourage us now to do the things that we just went over in verse 6. To hold fast our confidence and our boast in the hope that we have in him. But it's to consider Jesus first. And so we're going to take a few moments and look at who Jesus is. It's interesting. The Bible here um, tells us to consider. And the word consider is kind of a, it seems like a passive word. It seems like something you might think about when you get a chance. Oh, I'll consider this. But it's a far stronger word in the original language. It means to examine closely, to look attentively. It's to give your focus on something. You know, I remember years back we were in, uh, Maui on vacation and in the, one part of Lahaina there's a 
a bunch of little shops and we're out late at night, not late at night, but after dinner hanging out and there was an art gallery there that I stopped in. And they had these amazing um, pieces of art and a lot of them were of biblical um, themes. And so there was one about the resurrection of Christ and I was just kind of soaking that in. Um, I think the owner or the salesman, for some reason, he thought I was rich, so he came to me and he's trying to pitch to me, you should buy this. I said, I'd love to buy this. How much is it? It's $30,000. Oh, you said thousands? Okay, I'll just look at it for free, you know? And I just sat there for like an hour and we were talking about it and I was like noticing, oh, is that Mary on the bottom? Is that John, the disciple there? And we were noticing things and then I said, okay, you know, I spent all my money in Maui, so I gotta go, I can't buy this thing, you know, and I enjoy this. Um, but something, when you sit and ponder and you look, it changes you. In our day and age, we're so used to, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? What's the next story? Well, what's something that's gonna impress me? If we take a moment and just pause and consider who Christ is, and it changes us. If we look closely to who he is, it'll change who we are. It is Spurgeon who said, Charles Spurgeon, we shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. Keep your eye simply on him, let his death his sufferings, his merits, his glories, his intercession be fresh upon your mind when you wake up in the morning. Look to him when you lie down at night. Look to him. So we're going to look at him. And the first thing that's mentioned here about Jesus is that he is given this title of the apostle in verse 1. Consider Jesus the apostle. What does that mean? Uh, we're used to hearing that in the church circle. Uh, the disciples, the 12 disciples, are often given that title of the 12 apostles as well. Um, they kind of seem like they're interchangeable. The word apostle uh, was used in the New Testament days to describe someone who had encountered Christ. So the disciples obviously spent time with them. They were considered the apostles. Paul had encountered Christ on the road to Damascus. He was not a disciple, but he is considered an apostle. Today we have some, some denominations will uh, give a title of an apostle for someone who's like an overseer or the senior pastor or something like that. They'll use that. The word apostle in the original language, it means a, a messenger. But far more than just a mailman or a delivery man, the apostle was someone who came um, like an ambassador. They came with authority. They would come as an envoy. They would represent the person who sent them. And we see this in the news today of now ambassadors and envoys going to different parts of the world to represent our country. They go with authority. They will go and bargain. They will go and discuss. And he says he was now sent as an apostle in this way, the apostle. But also the second description is that he is the high priest. The priest represented this is the second picture of Christ, is the, the priest represented um, someone that the people sent to God. So they would pick the priest and they said, can you go, here's all the sacrifices, can you go to God for us? And so the, the priest represented the people to God. And what happened there is that there was a perfect, in Christ, the perfect one is sent and the perfect one goes to represent the people. Uh, it's interesting, you know, um, uh, 
F.F. Bruce in his commentary on this says, the Old Testament writings tell the, stories of, tell the story of God's self-revelation to human beings and their response to that revelation. So God's revelation to us in Christ, our now uh, response to him. In both respects, these writings find their fulfillment in Christ, for he is not only, as has been emphasized already, the one in whom God has revealed himself finally and completely, and also the perfect embodiment of humanity's obedient response to God. He, he's mentioned, and you know, there's this description of Moses and Jesus being superior than Moses. And you have to imagine that these people were uh, very respectful of Moses. I mean, it is written to the Jew, Jewish Christians. It is written to the Hebrews. And so they look at to the one who had given the law and the one that they've heard so much about, the one that brought the exodus out of Egypt. And so um, they look highly to him. But they say Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater in this way. Moses was sent by God. He was called by God in the burning bush. Um, and just stay with me here. You know, in, in Exodus 32, you know, he receives now the commandments of God. He's on Mount Sinai. He is sent by God to go to his people. Because why? The few days that Moses is gone, the people think that something had happened. And they put all their gold together and they make a, an image, an idol of a golden calf. And so as they make this idol, the golden calf, um, they're bowing down to this. God says, you better go. And there's a scene that Moses brings now, the tablets, the two tablets. Um, and he goes down with the Ten Commandments. And when he sees them breaking the law, he breaks the uh, law, the tablets itself. And so he now gets sent by God with the law, but the law is already broken. He couldn't enforce the law. He couldn't fulfill the law. And what happens at the end of Exodus 32, and I want you to just stay with me on this is he goes to uh, God in verse 31 and Moses went back to the Lord and he talks about the sins of the people and he says, now forgive their sins and if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. So he tries to be a sacrifice. He says, take me in the place of their sin. Let me pay for their sin. But God does not accept Moses. But it is only in Christ and that's why Christ is greater. He goes back and now he receives um, the forgiveness. He becomes the one who God uses to pardon us. So we see this picture here. He is greater in this way. And the third description of him is this, there's an illustration used in this text of the house. Uh, the house here in, um, and the builder and so on in verse 3 and on. The house is, means the house of God. It's the church. Uh, it's the people of Israel in the Old Testament days. It's the church fulfilled in that today. It's the people of God. And it says here in verse 3 that Jesus is the builder of the house. It says, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So Moses was a part of the house. But Jesus had built this house, this faith. Moses is a part of our faith. Abraham is a part of our faith. One day when we go to be with the Lord, we're going to be worshiping Christ with these wonderful people. I remember years back when I was doing youth ministry and I went to a youth rally, like a praise night type of gathering. And the guest speaker at the time, he was, you know, we we're all younger in our 20s then and you know, and he was preaching, and he was just really excited. And his whole sermon, I still remember, 
was how he can't wait to go to heaven to meet Martin Luther, right? And I was like, Martin Luther? And he was like, I can't wait to meet Martin Luther. It's going to be so great. If you accept Christ, you get to go meet Martin Luther. And I'm looking around the room, and their eyes are glazed over, and half the kids are thinking, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., Martin, you know, who's Martin Luther? And he's like so excited about meeting Martin Luther. It'll be exciting to meet Martin Luther or Calvin. It'll be exciting to see Moses and the Apostle Paul or Billy Graham. But yet, Christ is not just one of. He built this whole thing. Our faith is now started by him. And so your faith, somehow you came to this place, you know, maybe you inherited from your parents, maybe you came to faith as a, in an early age or recently, but somehow he has been there from the beginning. He built this. Not only that, he rules over our faith. And this is, he's the ruler of the house. The fourth picture of Christ we see as we consider him. In verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son and we are his house. He rules us, he owns us. Uh, he says, uh, the best way to illustrate this is some of you have owned things. Some of you might own your own business or own a house. Some of you have rented. Some of you have worked for. And you know, if you've been to a restaurant or a place, sometimes you know the difference when the owner is there versus when the owner is not there. Right? You could tell sometimes. Or when the boss isn't around. Or if it's not there is how they treat it. Very different, right? I remember growing up when we were in high school. When I was in high school, my parents, my mom had a deli, right? And it was, it was an Italian deli with a Korean owner with two Mexican, you know, like three Mexican workers. And so they would butcher all the Italian names. And um, so anyways, we had this deli. But it was ours. And there'd be issues. And then my mom was like, oh, we need to go because the refrigerator broke. And we got to go help figure this out. And I'd go Saturday with her and, and figure this out or whatnot. It was ours. I remember my senior year, I got a job, and I decided to get a job at a Subway. I thought, well, I have a sandwich background. I should dominate in this place, you know? And so I got a job at, at Subway. And sometimes I, I, I did this, with I think, with Carissa. And I, last time we ate Subway, I said, hey, I used to work at a Subway to the workers. She's like, why would you say that, Dad? You're so embarrassing. But anyways, uh, that was a whole other discussion. But um, I remember I, I got a job there. Very different, though, as an employee, in a way. I remember my fourth week there. I was there for a month. On my fourth Sunday, I was in the back cutting tomatoes. And then I hear the chime of the door. This customer comes in. And I hear the gal in the front who's working the register yell out, Oh, my gosh! Put the gun away, right? And, he's, and I hear the guy say, Give me all your money. Open the register. And I, oh, my gosh, we're getting robbed. So I stop cutting the tomatoes. And I wish I said I went and tackled the guy. No, but I ran to the back office and I locked the door, right? I was like in there trying to call 911. Um, I couldn't figure out how to use the phone. The owner never taught us. We were trying to call 911. And then I hear the chime. And then I open the door. And then here she comes, the gal, the cashier. And she's weeping and she comes back. And I open the door. Is he gone? Is he gone? And she said, yeah, yeah. Steve. And this is what she said to me. Steve, go get him. He stole our money, right? And I, the first time I was like, it's not our money. I'm quitting this place like now. Like, no way. I'm going to college next year. I want to live. Um, very different, right? And she was like, it's not our money. It's not our money. Um, I'm done. You know, the picture we see here, right? He says, the son, he owns this. 
He's not going to let you fall. He's not going to let you stray. He owns this. And some of you, maybe through the years, you've been impacted or affected or hurt by someone in the church. Someone was mean to you or someone you looked up to. They, they fell from faith. Doesn't matter. The one who owns this, he is faithful and he is here with us. So our response as we consider him, say, wow, he was sent by God. He represented us. What Moses couldn't do, he accomplished. He started this whole house of faith. Not only did he start it, he owns it. He's the head of our church. He's the head of the church, and he owns all this. And we sit and we think about that, and the response is twofold. We hold fast to our confidence. Secondly, we cling to the hope that we have. Uh, look at verse 6. This is, if indeed we hold fast our confidence. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence. He is reminding the readers of their identity. Don't give up. Don't be disillusioned. Don't let your emotions get the best of you. Don't let the circumstances around you dictate how you approach him. Hold fast your confidence. And I don't know what you are confident about today. Your health, your wealth, your abilities. We need to have our ultimate confidence in the one who has everything. Who is everything? It tells us to hold fast. That word means to go after something. It means to go and uh, hold on to it. Be deliberate about it. It's used in Acts 27 verse 40 to, uh, to, as the boat was fighting the wind and it was heading for. They made for the beach or they were grasping toward the beach. They were trying to get to their destination. Hold on to him. Don't let the circumstances of life affect us. You know, uh, there's a story or the parable of the four soils. Um, and the seeds fall on the four different grounds, right? And, and it's in the synoptics in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All of them talk about this, and Jesus tells us. And the first soil is this uh, path. It just falls, and the birds eat it, and it's gone. And the second soil is a rocky ground. There's a lot of rocks. It falls there. Um, it, you see a little bit of it coming to fruition, and then it withers away quickly. And the third soil you see is the seed is thrown amongst a bunch of weeds and thorns, and they try to grow, but the thorns and the weeds just choke it out, and the last is on good soil. And Jesus tells a story. The disciples ask, they say, what does this mean? Can you interpret this for us? And he says, yeah, the first, the path are those, they've heard the word, but they, they've never listened to it. The second is a group of people, boy, they start the faith journey, but persecution and hardships come, and they give up. A little bit of hardships, and they give up. The third category, which I think we have to be so careful not to fall into, is um, the thorns grew, choked it up. What does that mean? It's, and it says... Jesus says, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. The cares of the world. This is the pleasures of the world. The riches. I got to go out and make money and go do this. The pleasures of the world will choke this out. So you have one group and we see it happening in different parts of the world today where the persecution is scaring people out of faith. But then we in the land of plenty now, we have to deal with the riches and the pleasures of life 
got to run to the games, got to get to this. I don't know if church could fit into my life. I don't know how we're going to do this. I don't know who I trust more, God or my money. He says that chokes out the word. Has to fall on good soil. And so we hold on. And let me encourage you. I think for many who have walked with God for a while, most of the time you never felt like you you know, uh, your passions never led you to God. You just did it, right? You just went after him. You just did the things you had to do because of your faith. If we are driven simply by our emotions, I feel like it, I don't. I feel like it, I don't. Um, who would be able to follow Christ in this way? And so we do this. And the second thing is we boast in our hope, it says. Bo- our boasting in our hope in the last part of verse 6. Boasting. Boasting has to come at the end of a win. I mean, the the fun part of watching MMA or boxing, right, is someone is going to eat the humble pie because they've been boasting. I'm going to knock you out. I'm going to win and so on. But someone's going to lose. The boasting, the full boast before they win, the full boast before they have finished, The fool, the immature person, boasts about the things that they will accomplish before they finish it. But here, he tells us the boasting is in the future, it's in the hope, and it's already done. The victory is already given to us. The word hope is used 85 times in the New Testament alone. God is described often as the God of hope. And so we have to go and trust in him. Donald Guthrie talks about this word hope. He says the New Testament word for hope is much stronger than the normal use in which it almost means no more than a pious wish that may have no real basis in fact. That kind of hope would hardly provide a satisfactory basis for pride. Our hope comes in something that is certain. And so we boast in that. Um, I hope and pray as we continue this journey that we continue to fix our eyes to consider him and our confidence would come from him. Our hope would come from him as we look to him morning and night and let his mercies be renewed every day in us. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you uh, that we have this kind of hope and we have this confidence we can cling to. Jesus Christ, you are greater than all. And Lord, we just need to pause and to fix, to consider you, to fix our eyes on you, to look intently at you, to understand who you are. God, uh, we are far too distracted these days. It's hard for us to sit still just for a few minutes. Teach us to look to you. To gaze our eyes upon you and let that change us. So we cling to you. You are our confidence. We boast in you. You are our hope. The victory is ours, Jesus Christ. And that changes everything for us, God. We thank you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.